Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 29. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about this podcast journey is how I'm able to share information in non-traditional ways. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you will know that I have several different types of episodes. Uh, sometimes we talk about esoteric things like our coffee vocabulary, or I give you my take on some current coffee research. Occasionally, I tell you stories about travel or working in coffee, or I share stories of my old days working in the wine industry. Sometimes we go deep into a topic like anaerobic fermentation or the biochemistry behind how yeast can break a sugar molecule into a glucose to create flavor compounds like esters and thiols. Most of the time, I am alone talking to you, but sometimes I have conversations with coffee producers. Season one of the podcast was all over the place. So when I was thinking about how to structure season two, I was wondering if this might be distracting. So I put a poll on Patreon for supporters to give me feedback on whether they liked the variety or if they preferred one type of episode over another. Overwhelmingly, the patrons responded that they liked the wide variety. Most told me to keep doing what I was doing, so that's been the plan. Patrons have also voted on topics and episode length. Overwhelmingly, you guys like the long episodes, which I appreciate because it's tough for me to be brief. Anyway, today I'm going to do a new type of episode that I haven't done on the podcast before. It's kind of similar to the Q&A episodes, uh, like episode 11 and I think 20. Uh, but instead of answering several random questions from listeners, I'm going to be letting you into a typical virtual consulting session. As you may know, my main business is to consult with coffee producers. I prefer to do this in person, but sometimes I do consult virtually using email, Zoom, and WhatsApp to send protocols, photos, and answer questions. In today's episode, you get to be a fly on the wall of a consulting session between myself and a coffee producer in Uganda who also happens to be a patron. They are not an official client, but when they asked for a consulting session, I offered to answer their questions free of charge if they were willing to share the session publicly on the podcast so that we could all learn together. They generously agreed to these terms. I want to share this with you because I think today's questions are common concerns that I hear echoed from many different coffee producers that I talk to. I think it's also important because very few coffee producers would volunteer to publicly share their challenges and admit what they don't know, even though most of us have very similar questions. This episode might be the most relevant to coffee producers, so if you know any, please pass this along to them, especially if they are curious about using yeast to control their fermentations. Today, we cover how to process undesirable cherries, we talk about the challenges in scaling up from a small trial to full-scale lots, we also discuss yeast usage in very rural settings. For example, is it even appropriate? And we also talk about what volume should a producer consider using yeast. Is it better for small small holders and small volumes, or is it better for the bigger volumes? Even if you're not a coffee producer, I hope you will listen to the questions and concerns of a coffee producer and better understand their reality. My goal in this podcast is to paint a rich tapestry of context, and I hope this conversation accomplishes that. Today, I am talking to Donna, the co-founder and director of the Coffee Gardens. 
Donna is originally from the Czech Republic, but moved to Ethiopia in 2013 and has been living in Uganda for the last four years. The Coffee Gardens is a newer project of coffee producers who have partnered with select coffee farmers in eastern Uganda. They currently work directly with 300 smallholder farmers, and they have a microprocessing station in the foothills of Mount Elgon. Donna set up the coffee gardens with a vision to produce specialty coffee in Uganda in a way that benefits the environment and their partner farmers. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, there can sometimes be some tension between the best practices for the environment and best practices for a farmer to make a living wage. Like I mentioned, they are currently working directly with around 300 smallholder farmers who live close to the station, but I know they're hoping to significantly scale that and work with many, many more. They put a lot of effort in traceability and transparency and have developed some tech tools to achieve this. In fact, I first heard about the coffee garden from a digital technology seminar that I will have linked in the show notes. I learned they have a range of farmer training and environmental programs developed in collaboration with some cool partners. If you've never visited, you might think the weather is hot and dry in East Africa. But in this part of Uganda, the climate conditions are typically cold and very wet throughout the harvest. Donna also mentioned that they work in very rural settings with poor infrastructure. This is very important information for me to know when I think about how I would design a protocol. All right, let's jump in. So Donna, can you start out with the first question that you sent to me? So uh, when we work with smallholder farmers, us in particular, we put lots of emphasis of, on buying just red, ripe, fresh cherries. And our uh, colleagues who are in the mountains, they always look for that. However, sometimes what happens, uh, coffee, which is brought in bags, maybe sometimes in the middle of the bag, there is some hidden green or yellow cherry. And by that point, maybe the coffee has already been bought. So if we already get such undesirable coffee, which has already been purchased, I'm thinking what if there is a way how to maximize the quality of such coffee. I love this question. And I think that you bring up two really important points. The first one is that, you know, we think of quality, we think of red ripe cherries as a shortcut to quality. Like all you have to do is get ripe, red ripe cherries and then try not to screw it up. But there's so many opportunities where that's just not possible. The coffee world is so huge and so many people don't control the entire supply chain. So exactly like you're mentioning for processors, you're you're processing cherry that you're purchasing. And even if you're doing your due diligence to try and purchase visually what looks good, there could be some you know, hidden at the bottom or in the middle of the bag. And that's a very common, even in places where I work in Central, Central America. And I think that we're too often focusing on that uh, picking ripe, but when that's not possible, then what do you do? So I really wanted to answer this question kind of for the broader audience because this is something that a lot of producers deal with. Even if you are picking these great, beautiful cherries, there's still going to be some sorted out. So what are you going to do with those cherries? And what I want you to think about when you have this problem is that instead of focusing on the lack of ripeness, um, instead of focusing on that they're yellow or that they're um, not exactly the sugar content that you want, we're going to look at the problem as a problem of heterogeneity, meaning that these cherries are very different from each other. 
And so you're probably dealing with cherries that have different cultivars, that have different, again, ripeness levels, that have different nutritional profiles, and also different moisture content. So the problem is really one where the cherries are very different and they're very disuniform. And for me, a really big component of quality is uniformity. So what can you do to reduce the differences between these cherries and get a more uniform uh, batch? And a really easy shortcut to this, again, when you don't have a choice, when the cherries are already purchased and they're in front of you and you need to do something with them, a really good option for that is using uh, wine yeast or coffee yeast to do the fermentation. Because what that's going to do is allow you to treat these very different types of cherries, these very different like units, and homogenize them. So when you were fermenting underwater, when we're fermenting submerged, then we can homogenize the moisture content. Then all of those cherries that had a very different, um, let's say a very different upbringing, can then be in the tank and experience a very similar environment. And then hopefully the next stage in drying, they're going to go off to their drying in a much more uniform way. So I think that a lot of the times these types of cherries are kind of a problem child and your producers don't really know what to do with them. And one of the things that they can try is maybe very extreme processing because they're, again, looking at these cherries as a way of like what they're lacking, like they're not ripe. So what can we do to... What extra things can we do to treat these cherries? And I would recommend, like I said, doing maybe a little bit of the opposite, doing less, not treating these as um, in very extreme ways, but to try to homogenize and normalize those cherries. This year is a little bit complicated because of the COVID. So uh, I haven't found any supplier of uh, the yeast in East Africa or especially in Uganda. And now... Mm, everything's been a little bit slow so I was thinking that maybe we could try that next year but I think for this season it could be a little bit complicated to to get it here and uh, one interesting thing that I um, heard when you were um, answering my question you also mentioned that there are probably like different uh, cultivars of coffee but uh, what I wanted to mention that actually in particular uh, the area where we work there are really, farmers have really lots of uh, coffee varieties and um, often they are not aware of what they have in their gardens. So of course, many of these different varieties are mixed together and they are brought to the station and processed together. So of course, uh, maybe I was wondering whether if uh, the, the varieties are not consistent, then whether it, whether it also it's more difficult to apply yeast or whether actually it would, the yeast could actually help in that case. Yeah, I definitely think the yeast will help because, I mean, one of the ways that we're trying to get consistency and uniformity is by having the exact same variety uh, in, in a batch. But like you're mentioning, it's not possible, it's not always possible to get a single variety, a single cultivar in, in your batch because it's like a field planting. It's mixed and everything is being harvested together and then it can still go to a further level of, of mixing if, if some people combine their bags or something like that. So again, I think that at that point when you're dealing with disuniformity, yeast is a really good option. And if you... Um, when you buy it from the suppliers, they should offer you a lot of support on how they recommend to use it. So 
depending on the company that you're looking at, they should, hopefully they don't just sell you yeast and say good luck. Hopefully they give you a lot of support and I'm trying to make more, um, more information available, like a very introductory, at least this is how you use yeast um, if the companies aren't doing that. But like I said, I hope that most of them are, and that could also help you decide what company to buy from. Yeah. Okay. This, I think this is really helpful. And if I just may um, say mm, my experience with in, uh, inter- from interaction with one company, yeast providing company, they, um, when I mentioned this issue with um, like many varieties, they actually mentioned that uh, when using yeast, it's really good to know which varieties uh, there are or which varieties the farmers have, because it can help to deliver the desired um, maybe profile. But uh, of course, uh, you just mentioned that you could recommend different companies and then probably that would also be very interesting to to know more suppliers and discuss it with them as well. Well, I completely agree. If it's possible to know the variety, then that just gives you more information and more power. Because one of the things that I haven't really talked mm-hmm. about too much on the podcast is how to match the variety to the, the variety of coffee to the yeast strain. So unfortunately, we and I'm included, we talk about yeast as like one thing. We talk about yeast as this, you know, very, um, like it's one category, but there's really hundreds of different strains that could be matched to the variety. So if you don't know what variety you're starting with, then maybe that yeast is not a good match for that variety. And you're going to get kind of lukewarm results. It's going to be not something very special and all, and then you're going to say, oh, yeast doesn't work. But the problem is it was the wrong kind of yeast. It was not well matched. It was not well um, paired with that particular, with that particular cultivar. So knowing what you're starting with is really important. I just know that the reality is most of the time you can't, you're not going to go into the field and do genetic testing and figure out what cultivar it is. And then it may still be mixed. Even if you knew what it was, people in the field, especially like in your situation where you're buying from so many small holders. So I don't know if that's really helpful to say you should know the variety because in your case, you can't. Or maybe maybe you can. Is there some effort that you guys can do to figure out what varieties there are? I think uh, we know the general varieties. We just don't know which farmer <laughs> has which varieties. And um so definitely, I think uh, there is a way how to find out at least some main varieties, which we already know. And um, But as you mentioned, we work with so many smallholder coffee farmers and they have also, they have many gardens. They usually don't have just one garden, but they would even have very like three or five or six small, far, uh, small gardens. So in that case, it's even more, uh, more confusing. Yeah, I think this brings up a really good point in how to use yeast. I think there are many ways to use yeast, but there are two different philosophies. And I think one philosophy, and I see this a lot more in the specialty industry, is using yeast to make a more different coffee. So using it to push the direction of the coffee flavors in a very extreme way and make a coffee that really stands out. And that's one way to use it. The way that I prefer to use it is actually going in the opposite direction and using yeast 
to make something more uniform and more cohesive. So instead of using yeast to make a coffee stand out, I like to use the yeast to make it more even and more uniform. And I think that the reason why is because I think more coffee producers in the world, like in the entire world as a, as a whole, have this issue of uniformity. And I think the the larger purpose would be helped if we could make, you know, kind of raise the level of the floor instead of pushing the ceiling of quality even higher. So that's my personal philosophy, but you can use yeast in many different ways. What we need to do is if we really want to discover it, we just need to try it out and see what what happens maybe next year. <laughs> yeah, and I think the other thing that that you know I mentioned in one of our previous conversations is that especially when it comes to yeast or anything microbially related, it's hard to know in advance because they're such complicated interconnected systems that usually you just have to try it the first time and then adjust your plan. If if you like to go in kind of knowing all the variables, you're going to be very disappointed because it's very difficult. Um, But the other thing I suggest for you guys is you can do both. You can use certain yeast strains to make a very special, unique, you know, pushing more of the extreme flavors. But you can also use yeast on these coffees that you get that are less than desirable or less than than ripe what you're sort of expecting. So even within your own mill, you can be using yeast in many different ways. Most people use it for one or the other and forget that you can you can do both. You can make extremely interesting micro lots and you can also kind of make your uniform your you know lower quality coffee more uniform. But maybe I was I was thinking uh, so our station is really like in a very rural setting and um, how difficult it is to apply the cultured yeast. And is it uh, mm, suitable for a variable settings? Ooh, those are really good questions. So the first thing to consider when you want to know the difficulty level is how much coffee do you want to treat? So I think volume correlates really closely to the the difficulty level. So if you have very little coffee, if you have maybe a lot that's five bags or 10 bags, if you're just doing um, something small like I don't know, 500 kilos of cherry, That that's actually very easy. When you're doing very large volumes, when you're getting a, a lot of coffee every single day and your tanks are much, much bigger, then that application becomes more difficult because you want to apply the yeast evenly. And sometimes applying the yeast evenly can be a challenge. So I think in your situation, because you are smallholders, Um, or you're working with smallholders and you have probably pretty small tanks, right? Yes, we use uh, drums that are about 100 liters. And then we have uh, a few tanks which are about 1,000 liters. So I think small. <laughs> yeah. So for the drums, especially with those 100 liters, those are going to be really easy to apply yeast because your quantity is going to be small. And so you're, you only need a little bit of yeast and it's going to be very easy to mix it. When you get into a really big tank, the problem is when you you can't just apply yeast on top and expect it to work. You need to apply the yeast and then mix everything totally together. And sometimes you have to have people get in the tank and use shovels and turn up the coffee. So the delivery mechanism is still um, very manual. So it's kind of this this 
uh, dichotomy where this yeast process can be really easy to apply and will help smallholders more, but it's mostly being used by the larger people where it's a much more difficult and it makes less of an impact. So I think that's one of the things that is a kind of a bummer so far in the way that yeast has been introduced to the coffee industry. I don't think it's been introduced in a very in a very good way or necessarily in the right way. I think that in your situation where you have lots of smallholders that you're working with, you have a lot of disuniformity and you have really small lots, yeast could make a really big difference. But instead, what I see is it's used by much bigger producers who are just not seeing as much of an impact as is promised. Okay, so that's a really positive then for us because I think, um, as you mentioned, I think our volumes at the time uh, are not so huge. So I think that will that will allow us to use it and it will not be so difficult to mix it. Yeah, it will be easy to mix. You can monitor the fermentation more easily and I think you'll see a much bigger impact than somebody who is a, a bigger producer. So I think all of those things are very mm -hmm. positive for you guys. And again, it seems very intimidating, but once you actually get to it, I think a lot of that is communication with the yeast company or... Um, I, like I said, I'll try to have more resources available for people to to just try their first experiment. And it's one of those things where you can't you can't know in advance. You just have to try it the first time. Actually, maybe I would like to ask you something. Um, <laughs> a bit, maybe it's a bit funny, but so like I always look on the websites of different coffee companies and roasting companies and so on, and I see all these like names of processing of like anaerobic fermentation and aerobic fermentation and washed coffee and so on. But then to, to be honest, when I, uh, when we process coffee, we of course process it in a certain way. And then, and it's um, mostly we process washed coffee, we call it washed coffee. But then when I talk to farmers who process, who used to process coffee in their households and everyone would pulp coffee, they would pulp, maybe some of them would have very small production, like, 100 kilos, 300 kilos, 500 kilos during the whole season, they would pulp it and process it themselves. But when I talk to them, it sounds like everyone kind of followed different practices, even though they all were supposed to do washed coffee from Eastern Uganda, which is by government for many years, has been just washed coffee. So to me, it seems like everyone did something a little bit differently. And... Uh, but then if I see that, that some roasting companies sell coffee from, from Uganda, they would always write, write washed on it. And so I, I'm just thinking, I'm just so confused about all these names on the packaging and what it really, what it really means in reality and what actually consumers really, when they read it, would they really think that people in producing countries, what they actually really do with that coffee when they process it. So... I, I just wonder if we call it anaerobic fermentation, whether the other people who call it anaerobic fermentation, whether they also do what we did. <laughs> so if you if you know what I mean, that sometimes there are so many names and I don't know if consumers actually can imagine what happens with coffee before it comes to them. Last year, we did some experiments and we did experiment with anaerobic fermentation of pulp coffee. So we first pulped coffee, place it in a drum and we cover it in, in, with a plastic bag that was filled with water to seal the top. We got some good results and uh, that we were satisfied with and we are planning on scaling this up 
this year and would be interested to hear if you have any insights or advice. So you can't see me, but I'm smiling at everything else that you said before, because I think it's so important for other people, for consumers to hear how different producers process their coffee and how we just have one word that is not a good representation that everybody is doing something different. So um, I just want to thank you for sharing that. To go to your question about your anaerobic fermentation, I first have a question for you of uh, it sounds like you pulped the coffee and then it was sort of uh, kind of dry, like there was no water added to it. And then if you can tell me how many hours it stayed in that drum like that. We pulped the coffee and once that freshly pulped um, parchment, we put it in a drum. But of course, when it was still very sticky, we didn't add any water and we, we just covered with a plastic bag, but we filled that plastic bag with with water so the water didn't get into the drum but it the it sealed it from the top mm, with this uh, processing i actually got inspired by my friend who makes sauerkraut in this way but of course uh, she ferments it for more than three weeks in this case we fermented it for or we kept it in that um, drum for around 24 hours Okay. And you like the result and now you just want to do, you want to replicate that result. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So we got some good results from this processing and we, because we did it only in a small volume and we wanted to see whether we can replicate it this year, but of course, uh, using uh, bigger tanks that are more efficient and uh, less time consuming for us. Yeah, so unfortunately, the answer that, that I gave you is if you want to replicate results, if you want to get consistency and uniformity, scaling up to a bigger tank is not the best way to get there. Um, that can be very difficult to replicate the conditions that you did in a small tank into a really big tank. So I, I'm not saying that you're not going to get good results if you do it again in a big tank, but that you're probably very, very likely going to get different results. Because if you think about your small tank, the one drum, that has a certain amount of mass. And that fermentation that was happening in there is, as it's being active, it's creating its own heat. It's creating its own environment. It's letting off carbon dioxide at a certain rate. And when you put that into a tank that's five times bigger or 10 times bigger to try and be efficient, then you're creating a much bigger temperature difference. You're creating a lot more mass. And so what can happen is that this fermentation can get a lot hotter. And when you get a lot hotter, now you're changing again your environment of the microbes. So by making the small fermentation into a big tank, I promise you the results will not be the same. They could still be good, but they will not be the same. The only way to replicate this flavor uh, in a large scale is to keep doing the exact same thing. So instead of having one tank that's 10 times bigger, have 10 little drums that are, you know, that have the same configuration. That's not great news because that means a lot of labor and a lot more work. However, there are two things that I would suggest to you if you really do want to replicate this on a bigger scale. 
the one thing that you mentioned was that the, the coffee was sort of dry. Yes, it was pulped and it was sticky. And then you put it into the tank and then the water was on top, but the water was not in contact with the coffee. So this, what you're creating when you do this dry type of fermentation. So when I call dry means no extra water added. When this fermentation is dry, you create more opportunity for a temperature difference. The, the, the temperature from the inside of the tank to the edges will be greater because it's it doesn't have that much liquid. If instead you reverse it, if you fill the tank, the pulped coffee tank, with, um, with water, and then you do exactly the same thing, you seal it with plastic on top, if you do that then the water is going to help mitigate that temperature difference and you're not going to get such a strong uh, such a strong swing. So I always recommend doing submerged fermentations instead of dry fermentations and those fermentations are also much easier to scale up. No, yeah, thank you so much for this uh, for this answer because I and for some more ideas uh, because um, there's really uh, something new to think about. Yeah, so I think it's we will try that. When we first started processing coffee at our station, which is now mm, two years back, it was in 2018. Honestly, we started like we didn't know. We were just doing things by learning by mistake. And we were trying to copy what the farmers were doing in the mountains in more hygienic and consistent environment, I would say. And then we produced very little coffee, but we used actually, we used the drums small drums for mm, fermenting the coffee. Most of the time, what we used was we pulped the coffee, we washed it a little bit, so we re removed some of the excess of the, the mucilage because we didn't have the mucilage, and then we placed it in drums. We added water, and that fermentation was finished usually after 40 hours, which gave us basically the whole of evening. It was fermenting the whole of next day, and then the following day in the morning, we washed it, which really helped us in terms of timing. And uh, there was no clashing with other activities at the station when we were receiving coffee. And to be honest, we work in really rural setting and we work with most of our employees are from the village. So it was for the first time for them to actually work on a processing station or to have a regular work. So most of the, our colleagues are farmers from there. And um, so we felt like we need to have something which is consistent and we need to find a way how we can keep it consistent. And this type of fermentation, we, we call it like among our stuff, we call it long fermentation. And that we know that this gives us kind of consistent results. Uh, so we've been practicing that in those small drums in the first year because we didn't have much coffee. Then we offer it to our customer and they like the coffee a lot and um, they offered us contract for next next year, let's say, but they wanted to get more volumes for the following year, which was the year last, last year, let's say. Last year, we added the big tanks because we were expecting bigger volumes and we did uh, one full container of coffee. And then um, we were using the same processing method. We also uh, fermented the uh, coffee for 40 hours, submerged in water. We removed some of the mucilage. Uh, prior to that, but we got feedback from our customer that the coffee landed very well. The coffee was, let's say, consistent. There were no defects, so all the great things. But they somehow said that it like was a little bit different from the previous year, from that first year. And 
we were wondering why, because the rainy season was like very heavy during the processing. So we thought maybe the rain or we thought every season might be different. But then now when you're talking about the size of the buckets or the drums in comparison to big tanks, I actually started thinking whether that could also be the reason whether the, the bigger tanks just didn't work in the same way like those small drums. Yes, I can tell you with 100% certainty that the larger tank will give you a different flavor. And it's not because of the tank. The tank isn't really changing the flavor. The tank is just changing the environment for that fermentation. And especially because your fermentation is 40 hours, then it would have more of a magnified effect. So for example, if you did, um, so I work in some really hot climates where the fermentation is 12 hours. Uh, sometimes even less. It's really, really fast. It's very hot. There's very little mucilage and then they can wash the coffee. So if you have 12 hours in a drum and then you have that same coffee, let's say in a tank that's 10 times as big, then, but it's only for 12 hours, those two coffees, they may be a little bit closer together because there wasn't that much time a difference between them. There wasn't that much time for there to be different byproducts that get into the seed. There could still be a difference because it's so hot. That's a pretty extreme reaction. Um, but I think that difference will be pretty small. In your case, you were doing 40 hours in a, in a barrel and then 40 hours in that large tank. And they were able to tell a difference, which again, because your fermentations are so long, it gives that opportunity to for the two lots to become more different over time. If those fermentations were 100 hours, they would be even more different. So I think that for for you moving forward, um, I think 40 hours is a great target if you can get there naturally. Most of my clients have, like I said, very short 12, 24-hour fermentations, and we try to get to 40 hours. Uh, and the fact that you have that naturally is a really great advantage, and I think that should give you really even coffee. But if you're trying to scale up, one of the things I would recommend in your larger tanks is not to remove any of the mucilage. So pulp and then go directly to the tank. Because when you remove a little bit of the mucilage, you're removing food for the microbes. You make the fermentation happen more quickly, but the fermentation is what's giving the coffee the flavor. So you're kind of making it more efficient, but losing out on some of the flavor. So if in the bigger tanks, they notice that maybe the, the flavor was a little bit less loud, a little bit more muted, um, the flavor wasn't as strong in the big tanks, then leaving as much mucilage as possible is going to help you retain that, that flavor. That's definitely true. We also noticed that, and when you said that if we remove the mucilage, then we are actually also removing some of the food for, for the yeast and bacteria. But uh, what we that's what I was mentioning before, because we know that if we remove a little bit of the mucilage, and we know that the fermentation will take around 40 hours. We know that we can time it very well and doesn't clash with our other activities at the station, which we found very useful because that means that we can then in the morning hours really give it lots of attention when we wash the coffee and we start the sorting of the coffee. So, um, yeah, but maybe what you said to use the smaller drums instead of to go back to our... Uh, first year practices and then use the bigger tanks for the coffee which doesn't have the doesn't have the removed mucilage might be an interesting idea 
I think you bring up something really important where you, because of your process flow, because of your um, the order of operations, 40 hours is a really good target for you. So you don't want that to be longer or shorter. And that's another place where they, if you start playing with yeast, yeast, uh, different strains can really help you target that time. Um, I think a lot of people think of yeast, like I said, they, they think of it only in one way to either change the flavor or add flavor. But for a lot of people, they can use yeast to hit a target. So I had producers who would have really long fermentations because it was so cold. They were doing 70 hours and they didn't want to wait 70 hours. So we use yeast to cut it down to 40 hours and they were able to keep the same profile. So they didn't change the flavor of their coffee at all. They just made it shorter so that they could hit that 40 hours. Now, with you guys, because you're already at 40 hours, there is a chance that you could make that fermentation, keep the same flavor profile and do it in 24 hours. Um, not that you want to do that, but just that it's an option that the yeast can help you change, kind of manipulate the time as well as change the flavors. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's really, um, this is also really helpful and uh, and bring me, bring me some new ideas and uh, things to think about. The <laughs> to be honest, uh, sometimes it's really nice to have all these ideas and then sometimes uh, just being at the station and there is coffee coming and uh, we realize there is not so much space for actually trying all these things out. And then by the time we get a chance to cup the coffee, the season is already in the middle. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but I think these uh, we will try these uh, three tips like to um, change at least one thing at a time and observe how, how it behaves. I think it's really interesting to share with other producers because one, I do think the tank makes a difference, but also I think it's a good opportunity to talk about how this is a, a situation where record keeping is really important so that you can have your uh, you know, I know you look at a lot of data and you gather a lot of data, and this is maybe something that you may not have been looking at yet is all of your fermentation data so that you can say, okay, compared to these two years, these are all of the things that are similar and these are the things that are different. And to be able to, instead of guessing um, and maybe thinking about what could be different, that you have the numbers to help back you up. Um, and I think that the other thing that this brings up is that it's so common that the people that are cupping the coffee are not you guys. You know, like you said, <laughs> you don't feel like you're a strong cupper. So that means you've given away a lot of power to another person who's tasting the coffee who doesn't have the information that you have. And so I think that this is a really interesting, because um, that's so common in coffee. It's it's That's the standard, is that somebody else cups the coffee. And when that happens, you get into these situations where maybe they don't want to pay you as much. Maybe they change their volume. You know, they make a decision based on this cupping information, but really that information should be uh, yours. It's you should be the one, the producer should be the one who are cupping the coffee and saying, this coffee is a, you know, 83 or an 84. Do you want to buy it instead of giving somebody your coffee? And then they tell you, Oh, this coffee is this much. It's an 84. I'm going to pay you this much. So I think like that power dynamic is really interesting and very unique in coffee. Yeah, definitely. I, I can agree on that. Definitely the last sentence that the, the um, power in coffee is not really equal between the producing countries and the consuming countries. And uh, yeah, 
And uh, I just wanted to add um, one more thing. Uh, I uh, when we talk about this um, power inequality between like uh, yeah producing and consuming countries. Um, I have to say, I really appreciated one of your uh, podcasts when you talk about the, how coffee it's, uh, was built like a, such an extractive um, commodity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, t- since listening to that podcast, I've really started thinking about it a lot. Like together with Shaq, we've been talking about it a lot, like how um, like it's been, it's been set like that. But then after listening to it and maybe think about it a bit more, I, I really realized how... This, this whole commodity was set in a completely different setup. Like it's so labor intensive and the margins in the producing countries are so low. And then, and uh, if I think of uh, selling a drink, one drink, one coffee drink in, you know, in Europe, the prices are completely uncomparable and how this whole system has been set up. So, so really, I want to thank you so much for, for that podcast as well. It really also opened our eyes and brought us something to think about a lot. And the other thing I wanted to say, I wanted to uh, thank you so much for, um, for your podcast, because I think it's really great for uh, people who, that you allow it, you leave it open even for people maybe who can't afford it, especially for people in developing countries who can listen and learn a lot because you are sharing so much, but uh, maybe they cannot afford to get a consultant, but I think it's really <laughs> excellent. And I also suggested um, our team, I also told them if they can actually download the, the podcast and also listen to your podcast. So I hope they will, or I hope they did. They did. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, your feedback and I want to hear more from producers and from producers to learn from each other, not just from me. I think that's one of the ways that, you know, I don't want to be kind of the gatekeeper that you have to learn information from me. I think you can all learn so much from each other and I just want to be the the vehicle. So I appreciate that. So we're almost getting ready to wrap up. Is there any last um, item that you want to talk about or any last question? At the moment, I don't have any other questions. And I wanted to thank you very much because I mean, definitely like I've been in coffee, not like for that many years. And uh, I, I'm i not expert in fermentation. It's more like I have certain idea, then I wonder why it works certain way or doesn't. And it's really uh, great to hear from, from you about your experience and your um, all the knowledge and you can share with me. So... So yeah, so I don't think I have any particular additional question at the moment, but if maybe I, something emerges later, I is it okay if I email you? <laughs> of course. Okay. Yeah, of course. Great. There's always uh, open communication, especially for being a patron. And I just want to say that I really appreciate you sharing your experiences and sharing your questions to help other people learn, because I think they're very common questions that we can all you know, find ourselves a little bit in some of these situations. And I really like the project that that you have with the coffee gardens. So I really want to support you guys. And if you do get to the point where you're ready to try yeast, definitely let me know. Because like you said, I think something that I, I can help a lot with is letting people know what trials are not worth their time. As you, as you said, there's 
so much coffee and the season can be really short. And by the time you get yourself organized, maybe the season is halfway over and you haven't tried your experiments. And so I try to help producers know which ones are ones that are maybe a little bit more of a waste of time so that you can focus on the ones that will give you better results. Because most of the time people are just trying stuff because they're not sure. And then the season ends and you don't really get to repeat anything. So I'd be happy to help you figure out which ones are not worth your time. Yeah, definitely. And that would also be very appreciated because we don't have time to to be wasted during season. So what did you guys think? Was it helpful to be a fly on the wall? If you're not a coffee producer yourself, did you learn something new about coffee? If you like this type of episode, let me know and I can include more in the future. Hop over to patreon.com slash making coffee to support the show and let me know what you thought of this episode. The patrons make it possible for me to carve time out of my week and make these episodes and have them available for free to everyone else. If you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. And for episode updates, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. And Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening. And remember, life is too short to drink bad coffee. Thank you.